What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? So the coldest temperature ever recorded in Canada was in a village called Snag. Have you ever heard of Snag? <laughs> no. I've never heard of it before, but it's in the Yukon. And it was negative 63 degrees Celsius. And this is about negative 81 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, uh, that's cold. It's crazy cold. But it's, it's actually very close to the average temperature of the surface on Mars. But you know what else? What's that? As we'll explain in a minute, this is not what we're going to be focused on in today's episode on some of the most fascinating places <laughs> in Canada. So let's get started. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hatikader. And the man on the other side of the soundproof glass sporting a jersey, which he claims is signed by every single member of the 1988 Edmonton Oilers championship team, is our friend and producer Tristan McNeil. That's pretty impressive, if, if it's pretty true. Awesome. So we'll have to fact check that. Now, this is a show we've been planning to do for a little while now, because you know, a couple months back, we made a comment about the average temperature in Canada. And how cold it is there. And we heard from several Canadians about how it's not always cold in all of Canada. And, you know, obviously it's a very big place. And and frankly, we'd missed an opportunity to share some good facts about Canada. Now, we don't like to stereotype. At least I don't. I don't you, you don't like to stereotype. No, I'm not okay. a big stereotyper. Me either. But, but I have to say one thing about all these messages from the Canadians. They were some of the most polite letters of criticism I have ever read. <laughs> it's true. And and not one, but two of the letters included invitations to come visit Canada so we could experience it for ourselves. But again, we're, we're not going to stereotype here. I, I'm sure there's some real jerks in Canada, just not <laughs> any of them who wrote to us. <laughs> you know, so so in our replies, we, we promised we would show Canada some love. And, and so that's what we're doing in today's episode. And uh, do, do you want to tell them the exciting news? Yeah, I guess we should. So so, so this is just the first in a 65-part series about <laughs> Canada. Now, we're not quite sure when the next 64 parts will be, but but we're pretty excited about it. So for today, we, we obviously won't be able to cover every fascinating thing about Canada, but we decided to each pick a few categories. And I, I know there were a few strange and fascinating places you wanted to talk about, and I, of course, claimed the animal category. But uh, before we get to the various categories, I, I think we should probably start by acknowledging just how big a country Canada Canada is and how diverse its landscape is. You want to give us a quick overview? Yeah, happy to. So so there, there were definitely some surprises for me in our research, but, but just starting with the big facts, a couple of them that people may know, but just to make sure. So Canada is the second largest country in the world in terms of land area. The biggest, of course, is Russia. It has the longest coastline of any country in the world, and it's the largest country that borders only one other country. Now, it has more fresh water than any country with, get this, millions of lakes. That's right, millions what? of lakes. I had no idea. Yeah, so, so and, and actually, I'm not even done putting their freshwater dominance in are, perspective. Are you sure they're not puddles? 
Uh, you know, maybe there's a little language barrier here. We might have to check on that, but, uh, but still, I mean, millions, even millions of puddles is kind of impressive. But, yeah. so, but, but this actually does put it in perspective here. It says one fifth of the world's freshwater is located in Canada. And, and those millions of lakes, now we're talking maybe two to three million. That's more than all other countries' lakes combined. So how do we not know this? Again, now, we're not stereotyping, but if we were, if we were going to just, like, dabble a little bit in stereotyping, <laughs> we might say it's because they're too polite to brag about it. Yeah, I mean, that's something I'd definitely be bragging about. But I, I would have thought if they were bragging about anything, it would be about trees. Yeah, and there's definitely a ton of those, too. So Canada is home to 9% of the world's forest. And I'm not sure if you knew this, but that's almost 10%. <laughs> Actually, wait, here, here is one source. This is from a Reader's Digest Canadian edition that claims they do have 10% of the world's forest. And this is definitely the Canadian edition because they spell favorite with a U in it. And, and they might be a little bit biased, but I'm going with it. Well, I support that. And didn't I read that the huge percentage of that forest land is actually publicly owned? Yeah, that's right. And, and in fact, almost all of it, it's something like 94, 95% of the forest land huh. in Canada is owned by the government. And and for that reason, it's often referred to as crown land, and, and that is belonging to the monarch. Now, at some point in our 65-part series, we'll talk about the relationship <laughs> between the monarch and Canada. It's all kind of strange sure. and confusing, but that's for another episode. But a decent number of these forests are part of national parks. And I'm going to go back to this Reader's Digest Canada article because it's the one place I've seen a Canadian do some serious bragging. And the guy that wrote his name is Daniel Reed. And he says, Canada's so big that even our parks are bigger than countries. <laughs> well, I feel like they need a marketing campaign with Canada's so big jokes. Oh, man, this would be the best. Need a whole book of them. But <laughs> so, so, so Reed points out that Nahini National Park Reserve in the Northwest Territories is not only incredible because of its waterfalls, but it's actually so big, it's bigger than countries like Albania and Israel. And and this is a single national park, <laughs> and it's not even the biggest. There's another one, Wood Buffalo National Park in Alberta in the Northwest Territories. It's even bigger. In fact, it's bigger than Denmark and Switzerland. It's incredible. That is incredible. So do you have anything else to show just how big Canada is? Yeah, I've actually got one more. And so so Canada's home to about a quarter of the world's wetlands. And this is another one that that surprised me. So we're, we're talking over a million square kilometers of wetlands. Hmm. And according to Canadian Geographic, quote, these wetlands help moderate river flows and cleanse polluted water and support a complex web of species from microscopic zooplankton to migratory seabirds to large mammals like moose and caribou. They also store massive amounts of carbon. Now, particularly the boreal peatlands. And at a minimum, the peatlands store 147 billion tons of carbon. What? This is the equivalent to 736 years worth of Canada's industrial greenhouse gas emissions. So it's definitely in Canada's best interest to see those areas protected. Yeah. So once again, something I did not know. But speaking of all the interesting species, can I actually talk about one of the categories we mentioned earlier, animals? Because it just seems like the right time. Yeah, it definitely does. All right, go for it. Well, it's definitely no easy task to decide on which ones to talk about because there are obviously a ton of interesting animals in Canada. And I don't know if you've heard, but Canada is a big place. I, I feel like I have heard that. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I decided to focus on three that I really want to go see at some point. And I'm going to start with another thing that Canada is the king of. And that's polar bears. Oh, wow. Well, this, this, I hope this is impressive as my 10% of the world fact. Actually, it's even better because, uh, two thirds of the world's polar bears are in Canada. No way. That's crazy. So we're, we're talking about roughly 16,000 polar bears and Churchill, Manitoba is known as the polar bear capital of the world. Oh, that's a, that's a pretty big claim. So why, why is that? I mean, maybe that's a dumb question. I'm guessing there are a bunch of polar bears there. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least for part of the year. And th that's because it's on the western shore of the Hudson Bay where they gather each year to hunt seals once the bay freezes. And you'll find thousands of tourists visiting Churchill each year to see these massive bears in their natural habitat. This is in a really remote town with no real roads going to it. And you can only get there by plane or the Winnipeg-Churchill rail line. Only about 800 people actually live in the town. But you're talking about this town. So do the polar bears actually come into the town itself? Yeah, it's actually becoming a little bit of a problem. Because of warming temperatures, which make it harder for polar bears to hunt seals, you know, due to less ice cover, more bears have been venturing into town in recent years, and about 500 of the bears are pretty close to the town. Oh, wow. So is, I mean, is there anything they can do about this? So obviously global warming and roaming bears in your town aren't that funny, but I have to admit it's kind of funny to read about one of their solutions. 
And that's the fact that they have these polar bear jails there. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So residents can call a 24-hour hotline when they see a bear wandering around town. And any bear that they can't successfully scare off is then captured and taken to this polar bear holding facility. It's held there until it can be airlifted north and returned to the wild. And last year, 53 bears spent some time in the slammer. <laughs> It's crazy. <laughs> so there's a 24-hour hotline about this. That, that that sounds almost as important as our 24-hour hotline. Almost. And I guess, actually, for the record listeners, if you want to call and tell us about your bear sightings, in addition to some great facts, you can also leave us a message on our 24-7 fact hotline, 1-844-PT-GENIUS. So, so, so did they build this jail for the bears originally? Well, it, it was originally this military aircraft hangar, but then it was converted into this polar bear holding facility in 1982. And since opening, it's actually held over 2,000 polar bears. Wow, that does seem like a really cool thing to see. And and even the travel by train there, like you mentioned, yeah, that, that probably takes a while to get there, but that seems like it'd make the experience that much cooler. All right, so so what do you got next? All right, so th- this one's very different. We're going to go from the largest gathering of polar bears to possibly the largest gathering of snakes in the world. I- I'm talking about the snake dens in Manitoba, where tens of thousands of red garter snakes congregate to do their mating thing after spending all winter in their dens. This crazy ritual happens for a few weeks in late April or early May, depending on the weather. The males come out first and just wait on the females. And here's how it was described in an article by Joanna Klein in the New York Times last year. Quote, In this sea of snakes, a female isn't easy to find, even though she's three or four times bigger. At times, the ratio of males to females is 10,000 to one. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So a a female secretes pheromones from her skin, luring dozens to hundreds of males that try to court her by rubbing their chins along her back and flicking their tongues. She ultimately decides when she's ready to mate by a mysterious mechanism called cryptic female choice. (laughs) And the closest male wins and leaves a stinky plug inside her that tells others to back off. She can wait a couple days for the plug to dissolve and mate with another snake, or she can slither off into the swamps to feed and give live births to her babies in August. 10,000 to one. I mean, that is crazy. Mm-hmm. Wow. That is pretty intense. But but I can imagine it'd be tough for a lot of people to watch this, even if people think they want to go watch this. But I don't know. I'm going to act tough and pretend that I'm not one of those people. So I want to go see this place. <laughs> OK, so I, I've got one more on the animal front. And this one's pretty simple. One of these days, I want to get up to the Wood Buffalo National Park that you mentioned earlier. It's in Alberta and it's home to the world's largest beaver dam which is so big, it was first spotted by satellite photos about a decade ago. And it's over 850 meters long. Oh, that's huge. I, I do have to admit all this metric system talk is making me a little <laughs> bit dizzy, but but I want to see this thing too. And and these are some awesome animals, Mango. So you, you've talked about polar bears, snakes, and the beaver dam. I want to see all of these things. Now, I, I'm ready to jump in with my own list, but first let's take a quick break. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile... The ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. 
Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we've got an incredibly special guest on the program, astronaut Chris Hadfield. Now, now Chris has had so many incredible things on his resume that it's honestly kind of hard to know how to introduce him. He's taken three trips into space. He's the first Canadian to walk in space, first Canadian commander of the International Space Station. And if you've somehow missed his incredible YouTube videos from space, you definitely should pause this and go watch his TED Talk about going blind in space. And then everything else from there, because it's all so wonderful. But Chris, welcome to Part-Time Genius. It is my pleasure to be joining you two gents. Thanks very much. (laughs) So we know you've had a ton of incredible adventures, including things like escorting uh, Soviet bombers out of Canadian airspace and living in a research vessel in the bottom of the ocean. But as a kid growing up in Canada, knowing you wanted to get to space, how do you figure out that career roadmap to, you know, get to space three times? Gosh, there, there, Mingo, there was no roadmap at the time for a Canadian. Um, we didn't have a space agency. We had one satellite up uh, called Alouette, which was looking at the ionosphere and northern lights. But uh, there were no Canadian. I mean, at the time I chose, the only astronauts in the world were the Soviets with Yuri Gagarin and Alexei Leonov, and then the Americans with uh, John Glenn and Al Shepard and company. So I... You know, I said, "Do I become a Soviet? Do I become an American? What you know? What do you do?" And so, I, it's like a roadmap with no map and no roads. But I, I, I just reminded myself, even as a nine-year-old, that uh, for Yuri Gagarin and uh, and Neil Armstrong, astronauts didn't even exist when those guys were born, and yet mm-hmm. somehow they had they had turned themselves into somebody who could be trusted to fly a spaceship. And I figured that's the map I'm going to follow. I'm going to try and just change who I am into someone who someday may hand me the keys to a spaceship. And and amazingly enough, uh, that happened. And as you say, I flew in space three times and ended up commanding the um, International Space Station. You know, one of my favorite parts of your videos was seeing you do these mundane things in space, like, you know, brushing your teeth and how it really isn't that different. But but clipping your toenails is completely different. I mean, what what do you think is the hardest common thing to adjust to when you're in space? Yeah, some of the, the mundane stuff is so hard up there, and the th- some things that are hard on Earth just become dead easy. Like, of course, you can fly around, the, not even fly, you can move around the spaceship uh, as if you had a superpower, as if you were, uh, I don't know, one of the X-Men. You can just magically move with no effort, and and that's different than being on Earth. But um, we uh, have to exercise to keep our bodies strong up there, and in order to use some of the exercise equipment, it's best to wear running shoes. Like if you're if you're using the resistive exercise equipment, you want the foot support. Trying to put on a pair of running shoes is really hard without gravity. <laughs> it doesn't seem like it would be, but if you think about it, none of you puts your shoes on while balancing on one foot. You always sort of 
plunk down, and then you have the stability of gravity holding your butt still, and then you have, because you have two hands and one foot busy. Well, if you're mm-hmm. weightless, as soon as you tie up both hands and one foot, basically there's nothing to hold you in place anymore. You can't just keep <laughs> still with, with the toes of one foot. And every, every single time I would, I would float one shoe next to me in weightlessness, and then I would get busy sort of gently tumbling around doing up the one shoe. But every single time, by the time I turned around, I had rotated to some whole new orientation and the other shoe was gone every <laughs> time. So, so, uh, so yeah, it's the simple stuff um, becomes suddenly hard and some of the real hard things become easy. That's amazing. Um, so but one of the things I, I feel like I heard you say was that when you were traveling to space that there were sunsets or sunrises every 45 minutes. But I was curious, what's the most spectacular parts of Earth that you remember seeing from space? Uh, yeah, you go around the world in 92 minutes. So depending on the angle between you, the Earth, and the sun, um, it might be crisply every 46 minutes you get a sunrise, or, or you may be on sort of the oblique, and then you'll get a long a longer, slower diagonal version of it. But, um, you know, one of the most beautiful things I ever saw was something that you can hardly ever see from Earth and even hardly ever see from the spaceship, and that is these uh, ethereal, super high-altitude clouds that are way up in the thermosphere where it's just uh, very, very few ice crystals, way, way up above the Earth, almost up to the altitude of the spaceship. And if you get your angle just right, where the sun is still on the other side of the world, but the sunrise rays are just touching the upper part of the atmosphere, suddenly it looks like the Earth is encased in like like a ghost surf. There's this this blue rolling curves of waves way up around the world, and and it, it's unbelievable to look at. We call them noctilucent clouds, noctilucent like glowing in the dark clouds, uh-huh. but I only saw them for a couple minutes total in, in my three space flights. And I grabbed the camera, and I was thinking, no way any of these pictures are going to turn out, but I, this is too rare to miss. And I, I took a whole bunch of pictures of them and were just, just staggered by the, uh, by the transient, um, so delicate beauty of it. But um, the pictures did turn out. And, in fact, they're pretty scientifically interesting because it teaches us about the upper reaches of the atmosphere and also about the status of, of the climate itself because it's one more way to measure uh, changes in, in gaseous and, and water content in the atmosphere. So uh, a beautiful thing but also kind of a, a technically interesting thing and something the only moment I've seen it in my whole life. That's so cool. Wow. Now, 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 speaking of sight or, or lack of, you know, I know you talk about in your TED Talk going blind in space, but, but could you just touch on that experience here? Sure. I've done two spacewalks uh, where you put on the big white uh, suit and go outside the spaceship. And we call it a suit, like a spacewalking suit or an outfit. But, but in truth, um, that spacesuit is really just a one-person spaceship is what it is. It's a completely self-contained little spaceship. It even has a jet pack on it. It's got its own thruster system on it. And since it's a, you know, the only thing you're attached to the space station with is like a little metal clothesline just to keep you from floating away. So um, that system, it has to purify its own air, has to have an oxygen supply, power, cooling, radio, everything. And mine had some contamination in it that we weren't expecting. And on the way the contamination let let itself be known was it got in my left eye. And, and you can't touch your face, of course. You're inside a big helmet. Mm-hmm. So I suddenly had some nasty, uh, really uh, aggravating um, stuff in my eye. And my eye does what an eye does. You know, it slammed shut, it hurt, and it started tearing up. And I couldn't do anything about it. But the, because there's no gravity... The tears don't go anywhere. They don't fall. They don't drain down your face like they're supposed to. They just sit there as a ball of contaminated liquid getting slightly ever bigger on your eye. (laughs) And the unfortunate consequence of that is as soon as that ball of contaminated tear gets big enough, it it crosses the bridge of your nose into your other eye, sort of uh, against my my will and out of my control. And so then uh, I was blinded in both eyes. And then it's a matter of how do you react? You know, you're outside the spaceship holding on um, where sight is really important for safety. And now suddenly you're struck blind. Uh, 
or at least as blind. Imagine if you were lying in your back and someone just kept dripping uh, a really harsh shampoo into your eyes so that every, you know, you just couldn't hold your eyes open and everything was all blurred and your eyeballs hurt when you opened them. That's what it felt mm-hmm. like. So uh, I talked to Houston and, and um, I was outside with one other astronaut, uh, a guy named Scott Perizinski, and we talked about it. Of course, we practiced uh, one of us being incapacitated. You know, it's not like something that could never happen. We even have right. procedures for incapacitated crew rescue. So we don't want to do that because that means the whole spacewalk is stopped and sure. you're not going to get the, all the work done and, and there's going to be all sorts of people are going to be all excited about it. But um, fortunately, uh, I'd worked in mission control for 25 shuttle flights. I knew everybody there. They trusted me. We talked about it. And I just uh, opened the valve on the side of my suit a little purge valve up by my left ear that um, that allowed the contaminated atmosphere inside my suit to squirt out into space. And there's enough spare oxygen in a, in a high-pressure tank down by my kidneys that it, uh, it could feed the leak for a while. And by doing that and by continuing to tear up and cry and, and have my tears evaporate, it diluted the contaminant enough so that eventually... Uh, sort of like when you rinse your eyes after they've been uh, irritated by something, I could start to see again. And then I, I could get back to work and finish the whole spacewalk. But it was a pretty uh, unusual half hour of my life to be blind <laughs> during my imagine. spacewalk. Yeah, I can imagine. More more than a little terrifying. Wow, that's interesting. Did you have any profound realizations that you came away with from your travel to space or any changes in your perspective? Well, Profound is in the eye of the beholder, I guess. Uh, I I think the 21 years that I served as an astronaut and and worked and studied and supported other astronauts and took care of their families and took care of their families after the Columbia accident and mm-hmm. uh, and then my own years and years of preparation and as you mentioned in the intro, uh, doing survival training in the deserts and Arctic and and mountains of the world and then living and taking command of a crew of people living at the bottom of the ocean, all of those things uh, changed who I was to some degree and increased my ability to be successful as an astronaut, but I think also maybe changed my perspective on the world a little. When you combine that with the reality of going around the world 16 times a day and seeing everywhere so that you become intimately familiar with every place on the planet and the and the immense age of the planet and the transient shared nature of what it is to be a human being alive on this planet, I, I think it just gave me a clearer and less filtered perspective on the world, uh, allowed me to draw my own conclusions. And, and uh, whether that's profound or not, it's a perception that I've tried to share, you know, through uh, writing books and, and playing music and um, and speaking all around the world and, and through all of those things to, to try and let people see a little bit of that new perspective that, that our technology and inventiveness has given us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, Chris, I can't remember if we told you before the interview that the uh, name of the studio we actually record in is Bowie. And it uh, you know made me think that the Space Oddity video you did was just amazing. And, and I'm curious if you know if Bowie ever got to see your cover. Uh, Bowie described that cover as the most poignant version of the song ever done. Oh, wow. Really? <laughs> wow. Yeah, he had to give us permission in order to do it. You can't just cover somebody else's song and release it, of course. And um, and he wrote that song when he was 19, you know, just turning 20. And and he and he always dreamed of flying in space. It was a constant undercurrent to so many of the personas that he adopted and so much of his artistic creation with Starman and Mars and all the rest of it. And so uh, for him to see that creation of his when he was just a late adolescent performed in a place he'd always dreamed of going was to some degree like a dream come true for him. He loved it. And, and I play with his band sometimes now that we do the celebrating Bowie tour. I played with him in New York um, earlier this year, and I'll, I'll probably play their touring again this year. The guys that loved him and, and toured with him over the decades. Um, so yeah, I have huge respect for Bowie, and, and uh, I'm delighted that that's something that I did on orbit, um, you know, put a smile on his face in the last couple of years of his life. That's incredible. 
And since the episode we're doing is on Canada, could you just tell us uh, one place in Canada that's maybe secret or a little less known that you think is beautiful and you think everyone should know about? Yeah, just a little over a year ago, I was on an icebreaker um, way up in Canada's north. And of course, most of Canada is north, and a large part of it is is just so sparsely inhabited by people. And on board this icebreaker, we were, if, if you take a globe of the world and you look at that long archipelago of Canada that goes almost right to the very North Pole, the northern part of that is Ellesmere Island. And it's full of life, just not people, hmm. full of of uh, rabbits and fox and wolves and muskox and uh, a bunch of different types of birds and polar bears and seals. And it's it's thriving and teeming with life and ancient and patient and silent and beautiful. And it defines a large part of Canada. And it's something that even most Canadians never get a chance to see. So I brought a team of of uh, social media people with me, about 10 or 11, that, that could share the experience. And I think we shared it with the tallies, like 20 million people that got to have a good look at that part of the world that otherwise might never even realize just how it exists and what it looks like. And to me, that huge part of our planet, uh, so much of which is, is within Canada, which is so important to the health and, and, uh, and ecology of the planet, uh, to me, that's maybe the most secret but important part of the country. Wow. Well, we'll definitely have to uh, add that to the tour we're putting together here. Now, for all of our listeners, I hope you'll pick up a copy of Chris's best-selling book, An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, and check out his incredible YouTube channel. You definitely won't be disappointed. But Chris Hadfield, thanks so much for joining us on Part-Time Genius. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure pleasure to uh, to talk with you both. It's an amazing planet, and uh, I'm constantly looking for ways to understand it better and then share my version of understanding with as many people as possible. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi. 
Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Part-Time Genius. Now, before the break, Mango was telling us about his plans to see polar bears and snakes and beavers all on his next trip to Canada. That's right. I can't wait. But now it's your turn to talk about a few places. I I think you're going to tell us about some of the unusual spots you'd like to check out. Yeah. So for my first spot, I'm going to head way up north. In fact, it's the northernmost permanently inhabited place in the world. It's a place called Alert. And (laughs) it's a Canadian forces station that opened a little more than 60 years ago. And only about 80 people live there now, though, you know, as many as 300 or so live there during the Cold War. So what exactly is it? Well, it's it's a place that serves several purposes. It's It's been a signals intelligence listening post. It's been a weather station, a place to monitor climate change and a base for other polar research. But it's a pretty strange place. And it's actually so close to the North Pole that it's unable to connect with communication satellites. And the motto of alert is beyond the Inuit land. <laughs> but I, I'm guessing that makes for some pretty dark winters. Yeah, and some well-lit summers. But in fact, about four months out of the year, Alert is in complete darkness. There was a story in the National Post that put it this way. The 79 Canadians who inhabit the northernmost community on Earth last saw daylight on October 14th at 1230 p.m. The sun will next crest the horizon here at 1041 a.m. on February 28th. So I, I think I might hold off visiting since they've just entered that period of darkness. Yeah. And like I said, wait, wait until the summer months and you'll get about four months of 24 seven daylight. But there's actually a pretty funny story about uh, Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau when he made his first visit to alert as a kid. This was when his father, Pierre, was prime minister. And Trudeau shared this story at the memorial service for his dad. And here's what he said. I was about six years old when I went on my first official trip. I was going with my father to the North Pole. One day we were in alert, Canada's northernmost point. I figured I was finally going to be led into the reason for the existence of this high-security Arctic base. I was exactly right. We drove slowly through and past the buildings, all of them very gray and windy, and we rounded a corner and came upon a red one. So we stopped. I got out of the Jeep and started to crunch across the snowbank, boosted up to the window, rubbed my sleeve across the frosty glass to see inside, and as my eyes adjusted to the gloom, I saw a figure hunched over one of the many work tables that seemed very cluttered. He was wearing a red suit with a furry white trim. (laughs) And that's when I understood just how powerful and wonderful my father was. Oh, I like that. By the way, that that was Santa he was talking about in case you didn't (laughs) understand that. So, you know, so while Alert has primarily been this spot for the Canadian military to try and keep a listen on what Putin and his government are up to, it's also apparently a place where Santa may hang out sometime. And in fact, Trudeau and others have pointed out you can tell Santa is Canadian because he wears red and white. Or he could be Japanese. But uh, that's true. <laughs> where to next? All right. So so we're going to come way south of alert to a farm near Whitby, Ontario. And we're going to go back in time a little bit for this visit. But we're talking about World War II in that time frame. There was a special training school for intelligence agents that was developed there. It was officially called STS-103, and the STS stands for Special Training School, but it was usually just referred to as Camp X. Now, this was not just a school for Canadian intelligence. Agents from the Office of Strategic Services in the U.S. who'd go on to found the CIA trained there, spies from the British Intelligence Service learned there, several others were training in this spot. And so this all happened on a farm? Yeah, it was just this strange piece of farmland in in a pretty sparsely populated area near the Lake Ontario shore. In a report from Radio Canada International explained, quote, it was a good place to practice a variety of skills such as blowing up railway lines, (laughs) firearms, parachute drops, hand-to-hand combat, and so on, all away from prying eyes and ears. And it goes on to explain, during the war, it trained about 500 agents, approximately half of which were sent behind enemy lines in Europe and Asia 
to cause damage and disruption and or spread disinformation while gathering information useful to the Allied war effort. That's pretty fascinating. So how long did this last? Well, it only lasted a few years, despite the fact that so many were trained there. And after fewer Americans were sent to train there, Camp X started getting recruits from Central and South America. Now, these people were going there because they worked for British-owned companies. And they were there to learn counter-sabotage techniques to protect against Nazi subversion. Hmm. Then there were other European immigrants who went there to train. But eventually the school was closed. I think it was in 1944. So I know you have one more place on your strange list. What do you got for us? All right. So this one is very different. It's actually a haunted prison hotel. <laughs> yeah, that definitely sounds different. It is. And and so this prison originally called the Carlton County Jail was opened in the 1860s. And it was a really brutal prison. So several of Ottawa's most notorious criminals ended up there and the conditions were pretty terrible. There were multiple executions carried out there and and the jail was closed in the early 70s, really because of just how bad the conditions were there. But eventually it was purchased by Hosteling International because what else to do with this old rundown and horrible <laughs> jail than turn it into a hostel? And it was reopened as the Ottawa Jail Hostel. Wait, so, so you just stay inside the old prison? Yep. Actually, I, I, I'm I'm pulling this up right now. And, and it's, it's funny to go to the website and see, welcome to the Ottawa Jail Hostel, book your stay. Yeah, does it make you want to stay there? <laughs> and the pictures look really creepy. But, you know, for a one-night experience, it would definitely be memorable at, at, at the very least. And you can take a ghost tour, go to the top floor where you can see where Death Row was. And <laughs> All of this before you retire to yourself for the night. I mean, that is so morbid. And I, I think it would be interesting to visit, but I'm not quite sure I'd want to spend the night. Yeah. In, in fact, I, I think this is a good time for me to transition back to the world of nature and finish our tour with three more natural locations. I think that's a pretty good idea. All right. So so uh, what do you got first? Well, you know how we talked about the millions of lakes in Canada? One of them happens to be Canada's own Dead Sea. You mean like the, the Dead Sea Dead Sea, like the one where you can float so easily in? Exactly. So if you're in North America, why travel so many thousands of miles to get to the Dead Sea when you could just head up to Saskatchewan? Actually, that's my philosophy. I say that about everything. Like, <laughs> why, why go to New York when you could just go to Saskatchewan? <laughs> I think that's right. But what's amazing about it is the crazy high salinity of this lake, which is called Little Manitou Lake. The water in the lake is three to four times saltier than the ocean. I mean, the idea of kicking back and relaxing and floating and reading a book in the water, it all sounds pretty great to me, especially after thinking about spending a night in that old prison. Yeah, so so Saskatchewan is the province that this is the one just above Montana and North Dakota, right? Yeah, that's it. So it's interesting how even many Canadians are unaware of this Dead Sea equivalent. I mean, it does seem like a really interesting place to visit. Yeah, and it's a beautiful area, and there are also a lot of hot springs there, so that's a bonus. Definitely. All right. So um, I think you got another spot. So, so what's next? Well, sticking with the water theme, I, I know you're a big fan of waterfalls. So it's probably worth a visit to what some call the City of Waterfalls in Hamilton, Ontario, where there are over 130 falls in the area, and they're all part of the Niagara Escarpment. 130 falls. But wait a minute. First of all, what the heck is an escarpment? <laughs> and second, so you said Niagara as in Niagara Falls? Yeah, so, and escarpment is pretty much a geological ridge that separates two areas of different elevations, and the Niagara Escarpment, which is in fact named for Niagara Falls, is near the eastern end. It it, it runs a little over 600 miles from, I, I believe, like Rochester through the Great Lakes and then into Illinois. I thought we were talking about Canada here, Mango. You're naming places in the U.S. <laughs> yeah, we are, because along the way, it travels through part of Ontario, and specifically Hamilton, Ontario, where where those 130 falls are located. There's so many beautiful falls there, like ones with heavy rushing waters, ones with big drops, and ones that just kind of roll across a series of falls. That sounds awesome. I, I really want to visit this place as much as any place we've talked about today. Yeah, and of course, none of the individual falls in Hamilton are nearly as big as Niagara, but just seeing that many falls in such a small area is pretty incredible. And there's several more falls and towns around the area. It's definitely worth a visit. Yeah, I, I'm pretty serious about getting there at some point. All right, so you've got, I think, one more natural area. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm going to finish with going to this region of Canada where there's less gravity. Less gravity? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, so for several decades, scientists have been trying to find out why gravity seems to be missing in the Hudson Bay region. And 
actually in several areas of Canada, but it's more significant in the Hudson Bay area. What does that mean? It's missing gravity. And how did they figure this out? <laughs> well, uh, they, they got it figured out because there are a couple of contributing factors. But before explaining that, I, I should note a couple things. So the first is just a refresher on what creates gravity. As you may remember from science class, gravity is directly proportional to mass. So the greater the mass, the greater the gravity and vice versa. And the second thing is that gravity is not equal everywhere on Earth. I have to admit, I did not know that. It's because we think of the Earth as being this ball and the mass of the Earth is not equally distributed. Like the Earth bulges near the equator and then flattens out, you know, as you move towards the poles. All right. That makes sense. Got it. So let me go to the theories. The first has to do with the process of convection in the Earth's mantle, which is that layer of magma and is extremely hot. Well, magma is in constant motion and it actually pulls the continental plates down. And in doing so, it decreases the mass in that area. And then the second theory has to do with this massive ice sheet that used to cover much of present-day Canada, but one of its thickest areas was over Hudson Bay. This was a really heavy ice sheet, and in these thicker areas, basically it left this big indentation in the Earth, and the result was similar to the first theory in that it decreased the mass in that area. And so do, do scientists think one of these is accurate now? Well, they actually believe that both are accurate and both contribute to the missing gravity. All right, so if you were to go visit this, would you, would you feel this difference in gravity? No, not unless you're capable of noticing what it would feel like to like lose a tenth of an ounce off a 150-pound frame. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty sensitive person, Mango, <laughs> but, but maybe you're right on this. And it would still be a really cool place to visit. And yeah, I, I feel like we've talked about some pretty amazing places today. And, and for those we've missed, we know we've still got 64 more episodes in this 65 part series, you know, to come at some point in the mm-hmm. future. But I bet we've still got a few more to talk about because you know what time it is. Time for the PTG fact off. All right, I'll kick us off. So did you know that Canada's home to the world's first UFO landing pad? What? In 1967, the town of St. Paul in Alberta built this landing pad, and Canada's national defense minister even showed up to cut the ribbon at the opening ceremony. (laughs) I mean, it turns out it might have been a little bit more of a move to attract tourists as much as it was for Martians, but still pretty fun. I also feel like that's how welcoming Canadians are. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so I, I've got a weird one, too. Did you know what Canada's universal health care system and actor Kiefer Sutherland have in common? I don't, but I was actually just wondering that this morning. <laughs> well, Tommy Douglas, who is the premier of Saskatchewan, initiated the universal health care idea in a big way when his province set an example for the federal government. That's because he instituted public hospital insurance. But almost as big as this accomplishment... Douglas is also the grandfather of Kiefer Sutherland. Oh, wow. You really buried the lead there. That's Mm -hmm. an important fact. Okay. All right. So the red and white Canadian flag, you know, this is the one with the big maple leaf on it. It was adopted in 1965, only 70 years after it was first suggested that Canada should have a national flag with a big maple leaf. So until the adoption in the 60s, Canada actually didn't have a national flag. That's crazy. So one of my favorite things to do when I travel is to try some of the favorite local drinks. But there is one drink that I cannot imagine trying. And this is in Dawson City's downtown hotel bar in Yukon. It's called the Sour Toe Cocktail, which is a glass of local bourbon with a mummified human toe dropped into oh, it. Oh, gross. Yeah. Almost 70,000 people have had the drink. and, and All with this toe in it? Uh-huh. Gross. But one customer almost ruined it for everyone. He actually swallowed the toe intentionally, Gross. but not to worry. They, they had another one ready to go. And, and apparently there's now a $2,500 fine for anyone who swallows the toe. Oh, who's capable <laughs> of swallowing a toe? That oh, is unbelievable. So All right. Well, this is not that crazy of a fact, but actually I realized there was something that I forgot to mention earlier. And that's the fact that 90% of the Canadian population lives within 100 miles of the U.S. border. So as huge as the country is land-wise... There are so few people per square mile once you get beyond that 100 miles. Hmm. So Canada may not be cold everywhere, but it is home to North America's only cold sauna. It's called Sparkling Hill, and it's this resort in British Columbia. 
It doesn't sound pleasant, but apparently flash freezing yourself is good for things like arthritis and muscle pain and several other ailments. And while you're inside, you spend three minutes in a room at negative 166 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, my gosh. But just a few more minutes of that and the temperature could actually kill you. I mean, that doesn't sound like anything I'd want to try. And, it, it, you know, everything else we've talked about today, I think I would at least like to visit, but but not this one. But I'm impressed you managed to bring the conversation back to freezing in Canada. <laughs> so I think I'm going to give you this week's trophy. And remember, listeners, if there are facts you think we should know, email us at parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com or call us on our 24-7 fact hotline, 1-844-PT-GENIUS. We can't wait to hear from all our Canadian listeners. And just before we go, I just want to say a special thanks to Chris Hadfield. He's such a hero to us. And and please go check out his new Rare Earth series on YouTube. Thanks so much. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. (laughs) Gary Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eve Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who? Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.